This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. You guys, Den Talks is back. Now, by the way, this isn't even officially back. We're actually starting the first Friday of February. So start marking your Fridays for those downloads. Um, but we wanted to come out early. We wanted to come out today because this is such a topical, amazing episode about Iran, and we wanted to make sure you got it. So sorry for the break, but everyone needs a break sometimes, right? It's given us a chance to kind of regroup and get some really new great voices so that we continue just doing what we were doing in the first place, which is just expanding our knowledge of ourselves through the help of other people's experiences. Um, I also want to just remind you a few things coming up while I have you. Teacher training. Everyone always asks me about this. And here's the cool thing. And it started a couple of years ago. We are online now completely. This teacher training program, I always say, is one of the most incredible programs. There's nothing else like it because it is multi-lineage and it is so incredible whether you want to have a stronger practice, deeper practice, or you're actually looking to become a teacher. Either this is a great program. And what I love about it, it is online, so you can do it in the comfort of your own home, but it is live. So you actually interact with the teachers the entire time. You get to know your group so well. You have stuff, so you're not bored. You're not just staring at a talking face. You're actually interacting and doing things, which just helps the learning even more. It's incredible. Go check it out. Go apply. It is starting so soon. It is January 21st. So get your application in. And here's the thing. I have a special code for you because you guys are listening to this little episode that's coming out before our main thing. So you get a special code, DENTALKS. Put that in, all caps, DENTALKS, and you get $300 off. If you have any questions, just DM us, ask us. We would love to answer. We'd love to have you as part of that group. I am so excited to start these apps with you. And like always, please make sure you're subscribed because then the episodes just come into your box right away. And also let us know, what are you craving? What do you want? What do you want us to talk about this season? We already have some incredible episodes lined up for you. I can't wait for you to hear them, but also always want to tailor it to make sure you are getting what you need. So let us know. Reviews are always so helpful. And you guys, I just love you all so much and happy to be back here with you again. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. This conversation is very different than ones we always have today. We have Yasmeen Aker on. She is a success in every right. She is a successful actress. She's on Good Trouble. She was Miss London in 2006. And right now she's an incredible Iranian-American grassroots activist. She was actually just given a shout out from Lizzo. So she does everything really well. And not only do we get into a very deep deep conversation um, about what's going on in Iran right now, um, delving into how this movement is more than just trying to oust the Islamic Republic, but it's also how does this affect us all globally? We get into the bigger concept of the rise of patriarchy and how that has changed women in society and what we can do. We've talked about fundamentalism, not only in Iran, but also in our own country. And what I love about this, she really pulls the lens back and we look at things from a compassionate point of view. What is actually truly needed to make long-term changes and effects? But what might also be surprising about this conversation, which I really love, this is a woman, like I said, from the top, who smells, breathes, talks, and walks success. I mean, she's also stunningly gorgeous, but yet 
she grew up neurodivergent and she didn't always know that. And just with that journey of her own, it had her questioning herself until just a few years ago, what is wrong with me? This is important. We all just need to listen. You're going to learn so much about really what's going on in the Middle East. And I think it will open up your mind and allow you to also look at what's going on here and also within yourself. Um, again, drop a line, let us know your comments, you know, follow us. It's always really helpful. And more importantly, enjoy the conversation. You know, you come from such an interesting background and I know you're both parents are Iranian, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, both my parents are from Iran. So is it, um, talk about how you found yourself because you're also a singer and you're also an actress and, I mean, you do so many things and, um, how have you found yourself in activism simultaneously? And like, was this something as a kid, like that was Mm -hmm. immediately in your bones and your blood? I blame mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) We should all just blame it. (laughs) Um, so I am on the autism spectrum. I also was diagnosed with ADHD very early on in life. Um, And I find that people who are on the autism spectrum and people who are neurodivergent, people who are on the ADHD spectrum, uh, across the board, they have a human justice warrior aspect to their personality. They just do. And so very early on from when I was as young as five, I could remember, I have vivid memories of wanting to see justice be done. And I could very quickly see when something wrong was happening, either to myself, to a sibling, to a friend, to a person in school. And um, because I had experienced such intense ostracization and I had experienced this, uh, like when you're a child with those kinds of needs and the, your parents don't have the wherewithal to um, receive you the way that they should, and you grow up in a country that is, um, you know, uh, quite abusive to children. Children. When I went to school in the Middle East, kids get hit for misbehaving. Uh, corporal punishment is very common, commonplace. Like most people, immigrant families, their experiences, their parents, you know, hit them. The elder community hits you. So as a child on the spectrum and with ADHD and having to navigate being so deeply misunderstood, I was very sensitive to when I saw other people being misunderstood Mm. or mistreated. And I... (laughs) And so I started very, very early on. And even when I was in elementary school, high school, I would stop fights that were happening. I would, uh, if I saw a school fight happening, I would immediately get in there and just try to make it stop because just visually seeing someone be beaten for me, it just it puts me in a very, like, I need to protect that person. So I received a few beatings myself, just trying to protect I mean, people. Yes, little. of course, if you're in the middle of it. <laughs> but I just felt like that's kind of who I've, who I've been. And I, and I don't even think like, oh, I innately have this thing in me that makes me this way. I think that a lot of neurodivergent kids have it in them because they're treated so poorly and they don't know how to handle it that when they see others get treated poorly, they quickly uh, run to their aid. 
How did it present for you? Like when you say, you know, as ADHD and on the autism scale, like how did that present for you as a kid? Yeah. So a lot of people throughout my life, ever since I was little, they always say that I was odd, strange, like a little professor. Even when I was little, I had a lot mm. to say about a lot of things. I knew the minutia or the details. I would have a long lens view and a very close lens view of things that were going on. And I would be able to compile information in ways that were uh, abnormal to people. To some people, it was unique. And to some, it was like, yeah, I was this, say it, it sounds this, brilliant. Yeah. They're like, this is annoying as a, from the ADHD perspective, the two mask each other. So ADHD masks autism and autism can mask ADHD because mm. you really like order and organization, but at the same time, you really need everything to be different all the time because you're getting bored really quickly. I was also extremely hyperactive as a child. Really? So I was very defiant, just like very defiant, very anti-authority, very early on. I was sent home when I was um, when I was in kindergarten or grade one, I was sent home from religious studies class and told, they called my parents and they said, your daughter is going to hell because she's, oh. an in, she's an infidel and she's aye, going aye. to hell because I had an argument with my religious studies teacher at that age. Why? I don't know. But she said that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. And I just thought that sounds bonkers to me. If your God is merciful and you commit suicide, you don't go to hell. And she argued this with me and we argued back and forth. And I said to her, I'm going to prove you wrong, lady. Ooh. One day I'm going to commit suicide and you'll see, like, I'm not going to go to hell. Immediately. She was like, oh my God, this is this, this, like I, they couldn't handle it. And so I would constantly have these, um, disagreements with people who were older or people who had places of authority. And I feel like that's also very common for children who have ADHD and children on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. did you get your diagnosis? Uh, so ADHD I received when I was in grade three, so grade three or what, nine years old, 10 years old, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then autism spectrum, basically during this pandemic is when, no. uh, yeah, I was like, okay, something, something's always been funny about me. And wait, that's so interesting. Yeah. Because at this point you've already been Miss London. You've already, you've had so much success. So it's like, my point is it's interesting that you're like, yeah, it's not just that ADHD. There's something else that's like, what was it? Like, I know you just said there's something that's always been, but what was it that made you feel like I need further exploration? Yeah, I signed up for this really intensive four-month program uh, at, in, in the, in, during the, the pandemic, like during the beginning stages of the pandemic. I just thought to myself, something's not right with me. I know something's not right with me. I've done ayahuasca. I've sat with different medicines. I've done every program you can think of. I've done so many things to heal. Um, I have had a long history of, of, of um, really traumatic things that have occurred to me because I've had to live on my own since I was 14, essentially. So a lot has happened. And um, I just thought, you know, different mental health professionals, they're 
giving me different things and none of it is fitting because people on the autism spectrum will get misdiagnosed with depression when they don't have depression. They get misdiagnosed with anxiety. They don't have anxiety. They get misdiagnosed with all of these things. And I had been misdiagnosed with all of these things. And I was like, it's not this, it doesn't fit because I'm not depressed long enough. I'm having, I was having autistic shutdowns actually, or I was having, um, autistic sensory overload, which is like your panic attack. And you're just like, okay, now I'm shutting down, but these things are different. And I didn't know that I was on the autism spectrum. I just thought, I don't know what's wrong with me. Something's not right. So um, when you keep saying something's wrong with me, something's not right. What does that mean? And what does that feel like? Like, what is it to be in your own body? And for some reason, and why do you feel that way? Why do you feel like something's not right? Yeah. So my lived experience is that I have a lot of sensory sensitivities and physically being in my body feels very uncomfortable. My skin feels hmm. like it's on fire all the time. Sounds can be really loud and um, like uh, almost anxiety provoking if, if it's too much noise complexity. I would always make noises. People think I'm really good at mimicking. They're like, she can recreate any sound for you. I can recreate sounds of instruments. I have a four and a half octave range. I can recreate other people's voices. No wonder if you're I a hear cool things, I can say it. And what I didn't realize is that that's, um, that's echolalia. That's actually a symptom of people on the autism spectrum. They're really good at being voiceover artists. I mean, some of these symptoms are amazing recreate. though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but these things I didn't know. I just thought, why am I weird? My last marriage didn't last. I was married for seven years. It ended. During that marriage, I felt deeply misunderstood. A lot of times things would happen or I'd behave in certain ways. Like I do flap. I do flap my arms. I do do weird ticks like, and twitches. I do weird things with my body and like my hand. Like I do things when I'm in private because in public, I've learned to mask and be as normal as possible. So when you look back into your history <clears throat> from a kid on, <clears throat> do you remember your body doing things like that and <clears throat> you learning how to control? And so when, when yeah. was that transformation for yeah. you? Um, I just noticed that like other kids aren't doing that. And also certain adults told me you're being crazy. Stop that. That looks crazy. And what is it that you did? It's just like, you want to move your um, body. Because I will have it... like a twitch with my neck or something. And they'll be like, and someone will look at you and you'll be like, Oh, I can't do that. Or like, you want to readjust your body. I had a very funny gait. I walked funny and I had a very funny posture. And I remember when I was nine years old, I was like, I have to fix my posture. I have to walk like normal people. Like this isn't going to work out for me if I'm not walking like a normal person. Do you ever feel now, and I still want to get to you getting your diagnosis and everything, because you use the word, obviously, normal, not normal, which is you saying it. Um, do you ever now having like, what's the word? Like not fixed, because it's not like if it changed. Mm -hmm. Have you ever now, be, now that you've changed so much like about yourself to kind of fit in with which is perceived as normal, yeah, yeah. are there moments where you don't feel like yourself? Well, now that I have gone through the process of learning all about the spectrum and who I am, I see it as I'm an expert at pretending to be neurotypical right. and I'm perfectly fine being neurotypical around neurotypical people, but I'm a neurodivergent person and in private, I'm totally fine being my weirdest self. And what does I, that look like? I'm, it's just less controlled. 
truly less controlled. Like all of those things that I stop, I don't stop it when I'm home. If I have a twitch, I twitch. If I have to like do this thing with my neck, I just do it. If I, if I need to like quickly like move my arms and like expel some energy, I just do it. I'm like, that's me. I love it. Like if I need to stand a certain way in the shower, just cause it feels right in my body, I go for it because I'm like, that's just who I am. I like it. Is it relieving almost? You're just like, yeah, oh, I nice. get to just totally be me and not have yeah. these layers of. Yeah, it does. Sometimes I will go to functions or like a gala or a film festival or a, I don't know, anything, literally anything that is outward facing, public facing interview. Mm -hmm. And I have to have that public persona, that more, you know, neurotypical presentation. And if it, runs really long. If I'm doing it all day, I Oof. come home and sometimes I just like sob and I'll just like crumple into you're the so ground. so disconnected from I'm you. Just like, oh, like, I just want to be my, like, I just want to be my, my odd self with my odd, you know, hand and positioning and my own odd body positioning. And like, <laughs> I'm cool with it. I'm cool being the weird version of me and saying the things that I say and making the noises that I make throughout the day. I'm cool with it. So I'm happy to come home and be that person. So it sounds like this diagnosis was actually very freeing for you. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I'm a huge, uh, advocate to anyone and everyone who is really having a hard time understanding why they are the way they are to go and seek professionals to help you figure out why you are the way they the way you are. And then once you receive the diagnosis, if you have complex PTSD, if you have ADHD, if you have autism, if you have depression, if you have anxiety, let the people around you who know you know about it because it's not that you need to use it as a scapegoat. It doesn't need to label you, but what it does is it can give you tools and give the people around you tools to manage it so that all of you can work together to make sure that your communication stays really clean and clear and um, just integritous so that you are, you say who you are and you can be who you say you are and they are able to receive you because everything everybody does is just a bid for love. Some of us just don't know how to make our bids and some people do things that are problematic because they don't know how to make their bid for love. But I believe even like the most nefarious people on this planet, really what their actions are a bid for love that they just don't know how to make it. So if everyone around you knows how to receive you better and can have tools around communicating with you, whatever limitations you have, whatever different abilities you have, wonderful. That just means you'll have better communication. And so I get it now that when you're saying this, like when it ties into your activism, mm -hmm. that part of this spurs it. I mean, also just the passion that goes behind it and the knowledge, because it is true, you know, the nitty gritty to help really, you know, push things ahead. So let's talk about your background with your, <clears throat> so you're raised Iranian. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, but you never lived, you never specifically lived in Iran, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How is that for you? as far as seeing what's happening? So I was born in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. My parents were both born in Iran. I was born after the revolution. The revolution happened in 1979. Um, after the revolution, people who were minority religion uh, groups who had already lived abroad 
had very little reason to come back because of persecution. So my father moved to United Arab Emirates long before the revolution, and he already had a house there. He uh, had gotten married. My mother and him lived in Dubai. So when the, uh, the revolution happened and the Islamic Republic took over Iran, uh, because my father's properties were seized because many people's properties, uh, Jewish community, Christian community, Baha'i community, their properties were seized. Um, <clears throat> he had very little reason to go back. And there were uh, very real fears for a lot of different minority communities that if they already had planted themselves elsewhere, that they should probably stay safe and stay out. That's why we have a lot of uh, Iranian, there's a huge Iranian community here in LA. Huge. Um, because either after the revolution they left or people who had already been gone, they just, they were like, okay, we're not going back. It's not safe. And so I was born out after the revolution. Um, I have always wanted to go to Iran. It's always been uh, a deep desire, not just because it's my motherland, not just because it's like, uh, you know, it's home in some ancient kind of sacred way, but also because it genuinely is one of the most fascinating countries, um, very, very deep, rich history. It's like going to the Vatican. It's, it's, it's really a historic place. It's like going to Egypt. You're going to see one of the oldest empires and so much history. There's so much um, geographic diversity. There, there's so much um, ethno diversity. There's various actual like languages that, and cultures that exist within uh, Iran. It's very much a mosaic and it's one of those beautiful places where it's like you're literally stepping into a open air museum. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's how special this country is. And it's really um, um, like geographically gorgeous. It's like one of those places where like you can see such a wide range of beauty. So I've always wanted to go there. I've always felt connected. Um, but because my father was a member of a minority religion, and because when I was five years old, my father went back to Iran to visit his mother who was ill. He was arrested. Mm. He was imprisoned. Um, God knows what happened to him while he was in prison. Um, awful, awful things are done to people um, in the prisons in, in Iran. They're, they're, um, they're, their prison system is, is, is unlike what we have here in the West. Their judiciary system is unlike what we have here. They, they actually don't have due process. They don't have, they, they charge people with things like corruption against God. What does that mean? Who, who <laughs> knows? Uh, but, you know, they, they charge people who practice different religions with espionage because they say you're, you're a spy. Uh, for whom? I, it's unclear. So when I was five, he was arrested and when he was released, he was mamnu khuruj, which means not allowed to leave Iran. His passport was taken away from him. His credentials were taken away from him, which meant that he was not allowed to leave Iran to come back to Dubai, which is where we lived. So how long at this point, <clears throat> I know you were really young, but how long was this all going on for? 
um, I basically just remember him being gone when I was about six and then he was back. And, um, and I, and I remember my mother would call my uncle because my uncle's voice is very similar to my dad. So they lied to me. I didn't know where he was. I learned this when I got older wow. and I would have conversations with who I thought was my father on the Just, phone, but I was having conversations with my uncle and he so goes, you were oh, unaw- here. Oh, so you were oh. unaware that there was something really bad happening. Yeah, no, I was unaware that he was in jail. And so when he was released, his paperwork was taken away. And that meant that he was never able to leave Iran legally. But if he did leave, he wouldn't really be accepted anywhere because if you don't have your passport and also the United Arab Emirates, they uh, don't, uh, especially at that time in history, they didn't naturalize people. So there was no path to citizenship at that time. And because I was born in the UAE, I was technically born without uh, a legal a a real citizenship anywhere because I didn't belong to Iran. I also didn't belong to the UAE. And my father smuggled himself back to Dubai across the Persian Gulf in like a cargo boat. And he like sat, it basically laid down in a a wooden box and he was brought over um, with a bunch of cargo, like a cargo ship kind of thing in a container. He came out and I remember that day when I saw my father, I'd never seen him with such a long beard and he just looked disheveled. He literally, in my mind, he looked like that image of Saddam Hussein when he was found in that cave. He looked and he never was the same ever again. I remember my father was a very gregarious person who like laughed a lot and was very fun. And when he returned, he was kind of like, I think he had PTSD because he was very grumpy. He was quick to anger, extreme rage, um, quiet about certain things and just kind of like went off the handle. And I think that whatever it is that he experienced definitely traumatized him and he didn't ever speak about it. Mm. Wow. So how is it as time has passed? Um, have you always felt, um, have you always been very involved in kind of the women's movement and women's rights mm-hmm. over there or because of what's been happening now, really inserting? How's, how's mm-hmm. that been evolving for you? Yeah. Um, I, I personally never went back because of what happened yep. with my father. And um, as an artist, I've always been very passionate about women's rights. My mother was also very passionate. When we were younger, she didn't she would say, don't wear the veil. You don't have to wear the veil. That's just patriarchy. And and truly in the Quran, it actually doesn't state anywhere that you have to cover all your hair. You have, doesn't state anywhere you have to cover your face. Um, These are, there's three mentions of, of hijab in the Quran in three places. In none of those places is it with regards to a woman's dress in, in two instances, um, it's metaphorical. One of them is the veil between humanity and God. And then there's one other mention about women's dress in the Quran. And it refers to making sure women dress in a certain way that they look noble so that if they look like they are from nobility, they won't get raped because a lot of women slaves, female slaves were being raped at the time because no one, um, owned them. No one, um, 
they were not spoken for and therefore they would get raped or abused. And so he would say, these women should dress the same as the no women of nobility and women of nobility always had a veil stuck in the back of their head, kind of like a wedding veil. Mm -hmm. um, and he would say to have that. And then there's one other mention where it's like to pull your veil across your cleavage because people had bustiers, like to cover your cleavage when you're praying or doing things. Those are really the only mentions. Wow. I find that fascinating. <clears throat> The Quran and many other religions have been widely misinterpreted by patriarchy and by men. So my mom was always like, don't, don't, don't cover your hair. Don't wear the veil that you don't need to do that. And, and so even when I was a teenager, I was quite outspoken about it. I was like, of course you can be religious and of course you can be pure and your purity has nothing to do with your hair showing or not showing. Um, in a lot of ways, the hijab has been used as a symbol by the Islamic Republic. It's a symbol against the West. So it's yeah. actually a symbol that's used to say, we are not Western. We're not Westernized. Um, we are, it's, it's like a big middle finger to America and the West. And it's also control over half of the population because when you can control half of the population, even in just the way that they dress, they have less power. Um, I think it's more about control. And even in Iran, a lot of the clerics will say, if a woman doesn't cover up, then she's inciting a man to get aroused. And I just think that's ridiculous. I mean, you should be in control of if you're going to get aroused or not. It's not the way I dress that's going to incite that. So I've always been very um, outspoken about okay, that. Yeah. And I've even showed up on um, on interview shows like Persian, Iranian interview shows, being interviewed in Farsi, wearing very revealing clothing. I do it on purpose. People mm -hmm. know that I do it on purpose. And it's because I really want to question that in our society. Why do we place the burden on women? Why is your cleavage an un... It's a un it's a... Why have we relegated that to a, to a space of uncleanliness or uh, why do we say that, why have we sexualized women so much so that just their body parts are now becoming, uh, you know, aspects of society that they have to hide so that men don't behave in a certain way. I feel like we are going to evolve. We have to evolve out of that. I think we are. I yeah. think it's just so ugly right now, but I mean, it's what's happening over in Iran as I mean, awful, awful. I cannot imagine, but there's something so beautiful about watching these people rally mm -hmm. together and people you wouldn't always expect to come against the Islamic Republic. And you know, people that are probably scared shitless to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, people actually really strongly believe in the religion or business people. It's just interesting how many yeah. people are rallying around. It's not just yeah. the girls. The and majority of the Muslims in Iran are also opposed to mandatory hijab because they want people to choose the religion. They want, so there's women marching side by side. There's women in hijabs walking side by side with women right. that are not wearing hijab. And they're saying, hey, it's, it's about choice. Right. It's, it's about, about pro-choice, choice. which is what we're talking about too. Mm-hmm. Why can't you? Right. Because what people forget is if there's a choice, you're not saying to someone that they can't wear something or can't do something mm -hmm. or should it's by all means, like dress from head to toe in hijab. Yeah. If that's what you want. Yeah. It's just why should the person who does not want to do that have to yeah. do it? And honestly, it's not even there's this greater 
there's this greater question that we're not asking ourselves societally. And it's that Western countries have given a pass to a lot of misbehavior towards women under the guise of religious freedom. And a lot of us moderate people of faith who are moderates and people of faith who are progressive, whether they are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Hindu, we really have to sit and think about why is it that the Orthodox branch of every single one of these religions are very unjust towards women. It's not just extremist Islamists who are this way with women. The Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community are very unjust towards their women. Even here in the West, a woman has to walk behind her husband. They cannot speak unless they are spoken to. They have to wear the wig, again, with the covering of the hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same with in Christianity. Why do nuns have to cover their hair and be completely covered head to toe? Why is the purity and piety of women always placed in question in the orthodoxy of any of these religions? And why do us who are not on the orthodox side protect these forms of oppression and these forms of blatant sexism under the protection of religious freedom? I mean, it's fascinating. And I do feel like there's you know, it really goes back to the time when women were the witches, you know, and women were the power centers of all the communities, whether it was through their magic, whether it was through their brains, whether it was through their compassion, whether it was through their medicine, whether it was through their connection to nature and understanding how things went. And as you know, the patriarchy got smart to that and started to understand how to take it away, there's still that subconscious fear And I think, and it's so clear as women have started to, you know, make their way back in, really back in, and especially in the last 50 years, like back into businesses and, and you can see, I mean, not, look, not every single person is one thing, but let's, Mm -hmm. as a general scope, like you see these women when they speak or they start running businesses or when they're activists like you and how intelligent yet also can be compassionate and can multi like do all these things you see how they start to get even more threatened and threatened. And it's like, in some ways, I hate to say it, the Orthodox side of these all have the balls to do it still. And then the men who aren't in the Orthodox are just really fucking happy. Someone subconsciously is still doing it for them because they might not admit it, but I think they like the fact, like, you know, most people have privilege, like whether you admit it or not, you're, you're happy to be within that status. Um, and it is, I, I find what's been happening lately from the beginning of the pandemic, this is such, what's happening in Iran is just almost like the tipping point. It's really, and you know, that's always ugly. There's a big boil when you get to that tipping point, but it's the, it's, it's, you know, I would say when things are changing, the side that's, you know, flipping or losing balance holds on tighter. Yes. And so it gets uglier for a while before, it, you know, yes. before that grip just has to fall off. Yeah. And, um, but I think it's an amazing question because, you know, when you said it kind of even about the West, you know, in the West, as we know, we're so secretly controlled by these religions as well. It's not as overt, though it's starting to become a little more overt. I mean, it's, it's, I mean we don't have to look very far. I think that 
these, there are three fundamental things that are afflicting human evolution. I, and I wholeheartedly can like parse it down to its pieces. And those three things are disrespecting the environment, fundamentalism of every kind agreed and patriarchy. And these three things will always, uh, hinder human evolution. If we can compassionately, uh, course correct these three things that are occurring on this planet, we will literally see the evolution of humankind absolutely blossom because I think the emancipation of women globally is going to be the next chapter of our human evolution for that to happen. We have to have, um, our divine feminine globally be completely manifest. And in doing so, we will be able to respect the environment the way that we need to, so that we can hold space for what we need to hold space for, for the environment. I'm not even one of those people who argues, is it man-made? Is it not man-made? Are we causing the climate to change? Are we, I'm not, I'm past that conversation. I don't care to have the conversation of are humans causing uh, climate change or global warming. I don't care. The truth is it's occurring. It has mm -hmm. always occurred. And there are ways that we can behave as a humanity to be able to be good caretakers of the planet that we are on. And there are ways that we can behave that truly are, um, symptoms of patriarchy and fundamentalism and toxic masculinity, because we are taking control over the planet. We want to own it. We want to shift it. We want to use it. We want to do all of these things. And really it just means we're out of balance. I just literally about to just interject with the words. I'm like, it's balance, balance, balance. Yeah. yeah. And like as human people, like from a, from a singular psychology standpoint, when our, when we have like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when our basic needs are not being met, our survival needs are not being met and we feel out of balance, um, stressed, threatened, fearful, what do we do as right. human people? We control, we get very controlling of our environment. I'm going to control my diet. I can only eat this, this, and that. I can't eat this, but I have to go here, but I can't go there. You can't talk to me like that. I want to be this. I, you know what? I don't want you to do this. I want you to do that. No, we're going to meet up at this exact time. No, I mm -hmm. can't. Do we get very controlling of our schedule, our behavior, and the behaviors of the people around us. So control is usually a sign of feeling out of alignment and stressed, strained, and it usually means that your needs aren't being met, your basic needs aren't being met. So when I look at our society right now and I see a rise in fundamentalism for the last 15 years, we've been seeing a rise in fundamentalism here. We had January 6th happen. And Depends you're, seeing, <clears throat> you're seeing <laughs> so many groups of people in various different religions who are turning towards a modality of control. And this should actually be a symptom. This is a symptom. When a massive amounts of people look towards a beacon for control, when they look towards a savior, they're like, save us, control us. Let's control the women. Yeah. Let's get rid of abortion. Let's not let the gays do this because that's, that's going to be terrible. We're going <laughs> to, so when people are being that controlling, it means actually they're very fearful. 
they feel like their needs aren't being met. Maybe their economic needs aren't being met. It means that they're having a hard time with their survival. So yeah. how can we compassionately address that? Maybe if we compassionately address the disenfranchised people who have turned towards Trump and the people like him, maybe we can actually course correct what is being asked and what is being needed by these communities that are turning towards control. Because I mean, it's such an, when we do that, it means we're out of, you know, we're out of alignment. It's an interesting point because it, it is like a relationship. It's kind of like, okay, someone could tell you, this is annoying. Stop doing this, this. And you're like, but what's really going on underneath all that? And part of that, the first thing a therapist would say, or anyone would say is communication, 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 honest, listening, honest speaking. And we have lost that completely. And I mean, look really anywhere. If you look, I mean, there's zero communication in Iran. They're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to be heard. Their voice means absolutely shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, now they're starting to scream so loud. It has to, you know, it's, it's reverberating at least mm -hmm. now. Um, but even here in the States, it's like it, it, our communication broke down to the worst, I think, in the last four or five years mm -hmm. where people cannot even listen to anyone with an opposing thought. You know, if it, like you said, if it was someone who opposes gay marriage or, you know, anti-abortion, it's almost like there can't even be a conversation had besides both parties mm -hmm. to even get to that question of what's really going on. What, yeah. what, okay, let's forget that. We get it. You don't, you, for some reason, gays getting married freaks you out. Not sure why, but okay. What is else is yeah. going on? What's something yeah. that has nothing to do with people's liberal rights? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it I think has you're right. to do with fear. I think yeah. we have to begin addressing, okay, so they're fearful that, a group of the society is going to take control. So that's a big fear for like fundamentalists fear that, hey, if gay people can get married, then they're going to turn my children gay or they're going to, everything's going to be gay. Now, then what it's are we going to do? It's such a nice world though, wouldn't it? <laughs> if everything it would just be, be gay. It would be delightful. It would be delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Let but it go think, that way. Yeah, but I think like, okay, so let's address that fear. What are you afraid is going to happen? What is your need that's not being met? Because clearly the clerics in our country, because we have clerics as well, these mm -hmm. people who have high ranking positions in the evangelical churches and in our politics who are clerics, they're like the mullahs of, of Iran. We, they're not unlike them. They, they tout the same things. They want the same things. They want the same level of control over people. What they promise to the people who are afraid is they promise to bring things back to a place of purity and godliness. And for some reason, that gives people a sense of peace when they feel out of control. So how can we bring people to a place of calm and relaxation? How can we bring people to a place where they have their most basic needs met so that they don't have the need to look towards some bastion of control, some leader who's going to tell them that this form of control is how you're going to get there. And I think that that's the missing link is that mm -hmm. instead of saying, hey, what you think is crazy to say, hey, maybe what you're thinking isn't so crazy, but what are you afraid of? Can we address that? fear underneath societally and provide for you what you need. One thing that a, like the American government sadly has discovered, which is kind of very evil, um, 
when you meet people's most basic needs, they are very, um, uh, they're unlikely to revolt. So right. if food is kept cheap, if your clothing from uh, some fast fashion place is super duper cheap and you can afford a lot of things, even though you're desperately poor, if you can afford a lot of things, you generally don't take to the streets, right? So that means that if we genuinely meet the needs of our people, not through trickery, but if we genuinely meet the needs of the humanity that is ahead of us, they're very less likely to turn towards fundamentalism. They're not likely right. to turn towards extremism, especially if we have good educational systems. Ooh, that's something <laughs> that I want. Oh, I had a, a little light bulb moment. So our education system here in the U.S. is failing. We know that. We're, uh. we're not ranking very high, which is actually a big red flag for becoming um, susceptible to dictatorship because yeah. those two things are very, very uh, closely related. And I'm going That's to tie a scary it in. Thought. Yeah, I'm going to tie it into what happened in Iran. Okay. And so what... The Iranian government didn't realize they were doing, uh, which is going to be their own undoing, is that the Iranian government has actually had uh, a large amount of their population highly, highly educated. Right. They have really great schools, really great universities. They rank really high. Like some of their engineer students that come from Iran literally immediately get placed in some of our best schools in the U.S. So the biggest mistake that they made is that over 65% of their population are female. I believe, uh, let me get the, the number so that I'm saying the exact 65% number. 65% female, which is yeah. fascinating. So when they're all revolting, it's going to be a problem. 65% of their, the, okay. So women in Iran account for 65% of university graduates. Wow. Women have a 97% literacy rate and make up 70% of STEM graduates. And over 50% of Iran's population are under the age of 25. So many studies show that the most powerful weapon against dictatorship is education and literacy yeah. inadvertently Iran's regime has brought about its own worst enemy by oppressing the marginalized students and highly educated female population. And so now you have this entire generation of young women and young people that are like very, very educated and educated people see right through the tyranny of theocracy, orthodoxy, and dictatorship. And they're very, very well equipped in being able to outnumber their oppressors and overthrow their oppressors because they're tech savvy, they're capable, they're educated. What do you um, see like happening in that way? Like in the sense of, I mean, look, now has it been, you know, we're, now we're, we're doing this interview just so people know, because I know we're not releasing these till um, beginning of February. So we're doing this interview. It's now middle of December. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it's been two executions. Yes. Just two guys, and it's been two male executions, which mm -hmm. I, I is interesting that it's not women. Mm -hmm. Do you think, is there a reason for it? Is it to I try think that and... they're trying to, to, it's a fear thing. They're trying to scare men into not supporting, not supporting. the women. Um, I think that there have been more than two executions, but there's two that have been publicized. really publicized because I've heard of over 11 other executions of other families who've said that their children have been executed. 
Um, but these two are official executions. On top of that, we have nearly over 300 people who have been executed at protests that have been killed Just... point blank at the protests. So if we're looking at the numbers of people killed, we're seeing over 300 killed on the streets, two reported to be uh, officially executed, but there have been other executions that have occurred. And there is a very large number of people who are um, listed as suicide. Hmm. And the Islamic regime likes to list suicide. This is, it's very bizarre. They will release someone and they'll say, so-and-so was released and he committed suicide the day after. So-and-so was released and she committed suicide the day after. And some of these families have been coerced into silence and to, and to lie and to say, yes, my child committed suicide because they want to save their, they want to keep their own family safe. And some of these families have come out and said, actually, no, my child was executed. And they just said for me to say it was suicide. I don't, uh, I don't know what to do. And there's a whole other number of people. There's even video footage of this. They're being released from prison heavily, heavily, heavily drugged and they overdose and die because of the drugs that they've been given while in prison. Oh, how do we see it over taking? I mean, the one weapon they have left is literally that is just being able to kill for no reason, because yeah. like you said, there's no really due justice. Yeah. So it's, you know, just this ability to just kill. And I have to hand it to everyone there, the bravery of saying, it's okay. Like if I have to fight and that's my end, like it's worth it to be mm -hmm. part of this movement and change. Um, so I'm curious these, to know. These executions are definitely a sign of desperation from uh, this is, this is in the dictator playbook. This is what they do when they cannot. So they try to take back, they try to use trickery and say, Oh, we're getting rid of the morality police, which was, untrue, but they did it exactly during the same time that there was other news coming out that they wanted to squash. Um, and the people of Iran are not, are not falling for it. So it seems like they cannot make any reforms. In fact, the more reforms that they try to do right now, it will weaken them. Right. So literally the only thing that they can do is do what they did in 2019 which is in 2019, they killed 1,500 protesters en masse because that was the only way to shut oh. up the entire country to say, if you want your, you and your family to be fine, you guys are all going to shut up about this. And I think that they are basically uh, carrying out executions day by day. This is, this is, what, this is the only thing they, they know That's how to they do have. it yeah. because they're trying to use fear like absolute fear, but these but it's almost like their fear, like you said earlier, is almost their undoing now. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. even the fact that she was taken into jail because she was still wearing hijab, but it wasn't mm -hmm. exactly perfect. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like that pickiness is what fucked them. 
because it's like more people who even are fine with wearing hijabs and people who would never have questioned it are like, well, that's too crazy and that's too much. And now my child could get screwed and my best friend could get screwed and I could get screwed from just maybe rushing out of the house too fast. Yeah. Now this is beyond just a religious ideal, which you sold me on. You sold me on the religious ideal before, but now this isn't now. It's almost like they they gave up their cards a little bit. You know, it was like, oh, this actually has nothing to do with our thought of religion. This is now just total control. They showed it. Um, I mean, obviously it's obvious to all of us it was always control, but I think when you're in the you know, hysteria of learning and being indoctrinated, it's easy for you to be like, okay, no, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. And it was almost as if they messed up, you know, it's like, it was one of the biggest mistakes that Raisi made. Raisi is their current uh, right. president, prime minister. It, it's a, it's very loose terms because they claim they have a democracy, but they don't. You right. always have Ayatollah. You have the supreme leader. He's the supreme leader. And everyone else just gets to like play, play, play leader underneath right. the leader. And he picks them, um, really. <clears throat> yeah. And he chose him because he's a hardliner. Mm -hmm. And he's very... Uh, like he's an extreme fundamentalist and he wanted to really take things back to the good old days. Not unlike what's happening here in the U.S. Again, yeah. hardliners really like to take control when things are getting out of hand. And this was his own undoing, is that he really took a hard stance on these hijab laws. He used that as one of his, one of the things that he was going to reform is that he was going to make it tougher to get away with showing your hair on the streets. And, you know, he brought about what I think is going to be uh, the dawn of a new era in Iran. I think that he brought about what I hope is going to become uh, the beginning of a democracy in Iran and the end mm, to the theocratic dictatorship. I, I really, really hope that this is what they have brought about. And um, I think we just have to support the people, the Iranian people, because the women and the Gen Z of Iran are going to bring the dawn of a new age yep. to the end of theocracy in all of its manifestations around the globe, because it will start with them and yep. it will trickle the down to the other Middle Eastern countries. It will trickle down to Saudi. It will trickle down to Afghanistan. It will trickle down to all these various countries that have very similar laws. And the mullahs in Iran have by unintended consequences brought about their own destruction yeah. within their own nation because they raised an entire generation of people who are so intelligent that they literally see right through the sham of a theocracy or a theocratic dictatorship. There's a quote by uh, Christopher Hitchens, the stupider a regime, the more intelligent the people become. And the more humorous mullahs have raised an entire generation who see right through religion and have no more use for mullahs. And I think that that's really what they inadvertently did. What they inadvertently did is they created the largest generation of young people who genuinely see right through um, the sham of fundamentalism and theocracy. Mm. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I think we had Gal Sassone, who's one of our favorite astrologers, was just doing an event with us. And he was talking about the astrology of all of it. And he said a very similar thing, how he sees it all tipping and then, and then you know, uh, trickling down. But the one thing that he said, which was interesting, too, is this is definitely a dawn of the feminine time. Yeah. 
um, which we've been talking about, yeah. but also that, which I, I love that he said this because I feel like I've been saying this, that what's fascinating about this movement is it's not like a leader leading it. The movement is the collective of, like you just said, the Gen Z and the women. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like spearheaded by one person, which is interesting because that's not really how it's ever been done before. So we're watching something totally new, a totally new energy kind of come in. And I found it fascinating because a lot of the other things we've been saying for the past couple of years astrologically is it's the downfall of the guru. It's the time the guru has to go away. So it really yes. isn't about finding single leaders we put all our faith into. Yes. It's how does the collective energy of faith together and realizing that we have the answers together can take over, like you said, the theocracy. Um, so it's really interesting. How do you feel about that and the fact that this is really as far as I can pinpoint, like a movement that is kind of lacking, and I don't like the word lack because it has a negative connotation, but just doesn't have... It is a leaderless movement. A leaderless it movement. Re it really is a leaderless movement. And I think that there is a beauty in that because had there been a leader, he would have been or she would have been assassinated by now. Right. And all of the figureheads that exist outside of Iran that have leadership stature and positioning, they are outside of Iran. And so they don't have the authority to lead the people inside of Iran from outside of Iran, but they do have a duty to come together. I think all of the people that have a leadership position need to form a coalition almost like a board of directors to be able to uh, answer questions, to be able to provide services, resources. I think that we did a huge um, disservice to the Iranian people by cutting the free flow of information. I think now is the perfect time to give a well of resources and information to the Gen Z and the young generation of Iran, because they don't have a lived experience of what it feels like to be in a democracy. So we should be able to communicate with them to make sure that they know how these structures work, how to set up what they need to set up. And what we forget is that the majority of their thought leaders, the majority of their environmentalists, their human rights advocate, their politician, even the people who could be in their politicians, their lawyers, they are all in prison. So if we put pressure on the Iranian government to release all all of their political prisoners, literally we will have like a hundred leaders sprout mm. up overnight. The minute that those prison doors open, leadership exists. And the people of Iran are very capable people, very educated people. They have many leaders. This is not a leaderless movement, but in a way it's like they all have been collectively leading with each other. They have been using technology in such savvy ways in Iran to make sure that they communicate with one another, to know when to protest, where to protest, how to protest. And, and they really have each other's backs. And it's not just women. It's not just the youth. No, that's what's it's so great about everyone it. Everyone across the board, Muslims, Kurds, Baluchis, Afghans, women, men, the young, the old, every single aspect of their society are coming together. And what people need to realize, even what makes this, well, too, I just keep getting in the word virus, but I, again, virus has a negative connotation, but I do just keep picturing like how it's like the evolution when viruses change and morph and how now it's like, it's just all these different cells working together and it's just more powerful taking over. And it's just like, I keep picturing that, that it's created a new beast 
-hmm. in a totally different way. So just because it's leaderless does not mean it's weaker. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's stronger because it's found a different way to disseminate the the energy. Yes. Um, But I also want to point out when you're talking about how brilliant this generation is and how they're using technology and they're organized this way, I want to talk about so people really understand who are listening how impressive that is when Wi-Fi and internet is being taken away from them constantly. They never know when they're going to be able to get on. It's on, it's off within minutes, within hours. Like you just talk a little bit more about that too, because it is a brilliant thing what is happening under all of um, the constrictions. So here in the U.S., we get pretty grumpy when our, what is it, um, not beats per minute, but you know, like that, that internet speed that we have is like below 200. Theirs is like two, like that's how slow and um, disconnected their internet is. And they have disc and internet outages, I think every 48 hours or every 24 hours to make sure that they're unable to send out large files. So they can't send out videos and things of that kind. So their internet is heavily, heavily censored and also heavily, um, cut off, not completely because there are so many ways to circumvent, but heavily, heavily cut off. So some of these kids have been using their own like uh, video game consoles to communicate with other kids. They've been using, uh, you know, the old way of like paper, folding paper and sending pieces of paper back and forth, kind of like an underground railroad. They have been communicating in so many um, just brilliant ways, setting up VPNs. They have to constantly keep setting up different VPNs because as soon as you set one up, it, 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 it it can get compromised a lot of times. Uh, the Iranian regime will will compromise these VPNs. So they set up VPNs. There's so many different uh, ways that they uh, have been disseminating information with one another and also being able to provide internet to one another. And of course, us here in the US, you can always buy a safe, good VPN and like provide it at, you know, you can provide internet. There's other um, companies. I'm I can't talk about them yet because we're trying to keep them under wraps so that the Iranian government doesn't find out about them. But there's two big companies right now that are creating um, something similar to VPNs so that you don't have to use these cumbersome satellites with Starlink. Starlink has proven- Explain what VPN is exactly for people who don't know. Um, (laughs) So a VPN is like a cloud. uh, it's, It's basically like you- can share your internet through a code with someone across the globe anywhere. Wow. So So it's like a global hotspot. Exactly. So you Mm. can purchase one and then your one. It's like I could sponsor someone's internet from here. Exactly. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. And so a lot of people in the West have been doing that, have been providing internet to thousands of people in Iran just through VPNs, but VPNs can get very easily hacked. Your metadata is very quickly re- retrievable, so it can be used from in malicious ways. So there's other technologies that are being formed by Google and other companies that are going to circumvent that and be much more safe um, and to be able to provide internet to the people in Iran on um, mass. And then there's the Starlink satellites, but that's kind of been proven not very useful. A, they're extremely expensive. They're on the black market. They're getting into the wrong hands. It's not, it's unreliable. So 
really it's been through VPNs and now through other technologies that I won't speak on right now because for fear of Safety, the Islamic yeah. Republic hearing it and knowing what's out there. Um, and then also the, the kids there are so tech savvy. They talk to each other through their, their game consoles and through other means that they, they are, they have been maintaining contact through other online and phone, um, apps that have helped them. Everything eventually gets, you know, found out. And so they have to be really quick on their feet and change, uh, VPNs, change accounts, change apps, delete, you know, re-download when they send things out to the West. So a lot of videos get sent to Turkey or to neighboring countries, to other activist cells who receive them. As soon as they do, they delete it. They delete it off their phone. They do it in private yeah. ways um, to get information uh, out to each other and to kind of stay safe from the government. I mean, it's real impressive. It's, we are going to look back in this moment of time and there is going to be so much to learn from. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing what's happening. And you've been such an incredible part. Well, I, while we're wrapping up, how can people help? Because I know it's tricky. It's not, t tell us how people can actually help. Okay. So there are real ways that you can help. And the first thing is to know what do Iranians want? Because if you don't know what they are actually wanting, it's really hard to help them. Iranians at this point do not want reform. So if any of your government officials push for any reform or any kind of negotiation with the Islamic Republic, call those representatives and remind them that the Iranian people do not want reforms. They want an end to their theocratic dictatorship. They want a fully functioning democracy, an end to corruption, a thriving economy. They don't want a return of monarchy. So they don't want the monarchy to, switch to come it out. back. They don't want to switch yeah. out to any other kind of, they also don't want their military to take over. They don't want a police state. They want their corrupt government to be held responsible for their crimes against humanity. And so right now the UN has opened an investigation into these crimes. This is good. Perfect. Yesterday, the UN expelled Iran the from the Women's Council. Commission. Commission. Beautiful. Amazing. Yes. Forward steps. Iranians want freedom of expression, freedom to love, freedom of sexuality, to dance, to sing, to learn, freedom of speech, freedom to practice any religion or no religion. They want their basic human rights, right? The women want to be able to have sovereignty over their bodies. And the people of Iran want the freedom to choose, choose their own religion, choose their what they want done to them, choose if they want to wear a hijab or not wear a hijab. And so what's really, really important is for us to make demands of our own world leaders and our politicians. We need to call our representatives and to demand, hey, what are you doing to give internet to the people of Iran? What are you putting forward to give internet to the people of Iran? This is important to advocate companies like Google and other companies to create safe, scalable technologies to reconnect the people to internet, to advocate for all political prisoners to be freed, to be released from those prisoners prisons because their leaders are in those prisons. And if we want Iran to have good leadership, we must have those prisoners be out. And these prisoners are subject to torture, 
many of them are facing immediate executions. There is a march happening this weekend. I know this isn't going to be airing uh, until after the march, but there are protests happening every single weekend. Come to the protests, even if you're not Iranian, come and stand in solidarity. If you're Ukrainian, if you're from China, let us stand shoulder to shoulder. I always invite the Kurdish people, the Afghans, uh, Ukrainians, Chinese, we're all fighting the same thing. So let us stand shoulder to shoulder against fundamentalism, against dictatorship, against tyranny, and go to these protests. Um, we really, really need to push our governments to put targeted sanctions on the Islamic Republic, the government officials, their associates, their diplomats, and their family members, especially the family members living abroad. We need to freeze their assets. Many of these uh, mullahs who claim women can't where they uh, can't go outside without hijab, all of their kids, their daughters are out in the West spending the money of their mm. parents. And those assets need to be frozen. These people need to be returned back to their country. If it's so wonderful over there, then go back over there until you can change the, the government. Once the government is changed, of course, visas can be reissued. Another thing we really need to do in the West is we have to offer support and resources to the Iranian people and the Iranian youth because they have very limited lived experience of what a democratic process looks like. So how can we help these people circumvent censorship? How can we share information so, to the freedom fighters in Iran so that they are well equipped to set up their own systems? We need to find ways to support the workers in Iran and the shop owners in Iran, they have been having nationwide strikes for well over a month now. And these strikes are going to cripple the Iranian government. So in whatever means necessary, if we can tell our representatives, hey, what are we doing to support these strikes? Are we allowing people to send money to their family members legally? Are we allowing uh, nonprofit organizations to so be able to support these people who are on strike, these things are important. These are the ways that these movements actually succeed. Is And so these are the kinds of things that we can do. We have to place sanctions on the Supreme Leader himself. To this day, he has had no sanctions placed on him. We have sanctions that have been placed that have hindered the free flow of information. And yet we have yet to place sanctions on the Supreme Leader, which needs to happen. Um, and then another thing that I think we can do here in the West, which we've already done for the Ukrainians, we need to offer asylum to uh, assistance to people, especially students fleeing the Islamic Republic yeah. and fleeing persecution, those who have been imprisoned. We have to expedite these asylum cases and provide protection to these people seeking asylum and create an open path for student visas and for ways for these people who are in danger to be able to get out of danger. I think that this needs to be nonpartisan. We need to have people on both sides of the aisle working towards this. The Iranian people across the board in every country that they exist, they are useful members of society. And I think that we owe it to them to, to help them because it's, it, you know, it, it's really sad to see uh, how we have dehumanized Middle Easterners in the West. Yeah. We've, we've made them these yucky, ugly, 
Because people don't know, it's how we started this conversation. People do not understand the culture and it's easier to put it, but it's, you know, you said this in a speech yourself. It's like their fight is our fight and not just because we should be supporting it, but also because we're going through similar things here. So it's this understanding that this movement is beyond just those borders. Mm -hmm. The movement, like you said, is going to trickle everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it affects us more personally than I think people realize. So mm-hmm. yeah. if at all, just, if at all, just tapping into that selfish version to get people to start helping and support, yeah. hopefully that will do it. But yeah. I have a question to bring it full circle, kind of funny to combine what we our conversation started. So when you were going to these protests, how do you regulate yourself? Like your nervous system knowing, no, but I mean, let's like really bring it full. Now here you are. You're, you protest, you're leading these, you've got people screaming, you're leading the chance. Like, what does your body do knowing, especially with the autism? Like you just go adrenaline, (laughs) you just run on adrenaline. And then when you go home, you take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. You just run on adrenaline. There's a lot happening. You feel it's just also when you're one thing is, um, (laughs) hyper-focus, both people on the autism spectrum and ADHD have this, but when you're hyper-focused, when you're very motivated about something that everything else kind of shuts out Um, and you can kind of like really zone in on something. So when I'm at these protests, I'm completely focused. It's like when I'm on set, when we're shooting something like the world just disappears. All that exists is that story. So So at these protests, all that exists is that. So the sound's not freaking you out. It's not too much. And just like on set, then the lights aren't bothering you on set. It's a very bizarre Hmm. thing that a lot of parents have a hard time understanding with their autistic children. So like my kid's screaming at the top of his lungs. It doesn't bother him when he's screaming, but it bothers him that there's this weird radio playing in the distance. (laughs) And And also, I don't know how to explain it. And interesting how sometimes it gets turned off depending on your level of focus. And that yeah. I'm sure is hard for someone on the outside to yeah. understand when is it on, when is it yeah. off. It's all about complexity. So yeah. it's not loud noises that bother uh, neurodivergent people and children. It's the complexity and yes. how much of that complexity is unwanted or unnecessary. So mm. if there's a lot of complexity, but you're focused in on it and you're it's, it's of use to you. So you're interacting with it. You could sit through it, but if the complexity is not of any use to what is happening to you right then and there, it almost feels like static. It's too much happening. Wow. That's thank. By the way, I mean, you've been such an amazing guest because I've learned so much like on so many different levels, but even that I had no clue, like the complexity idea of sound. I just always kind of thought it was more too much or too loud. So, wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. But thank you for everything. This is so enlightening in so many ways. And I think people don't really sit and really dive in and talk about what's going on unless you're watching the news. But I feel like you have such a much more compassionate angle and way to explain things and talk about it that is so necessary. And again, from a bigger perspective of what's going on in society everywhere, this is a pretty amazing time. And I mean, I pray every day for these people who are in there fighting that fight because it is scary and it's life or death every single moment. And they're not just doing it. Yes, they're doing it for their own freedoms, but it really is going to affect all of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that. And I'm grateful yeah. for you um, being one of the non-leader leaders. And so 
No, but it's true. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for amplifying the voices of the people of Iran. Thank you for allowing your listeners to hear more about the, the, you know, the complexities of what has happened and what is happening and how it's completely connected with what's happening here in America and globally, because the fight is the same. We're all fighting the exact same thing. We're all in this together. This fight is, is, um, it's, this is a global movement. This is not, it's just, it just so happens that it started in Iran. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's Yasmin's personal practice, which is a personal mantra she uses for realignment. So this is a personal mantra that I say to myself, um, especially because you know, uh, when things are not my preference and as anyone who's on the spectrum or neurodivergent will be able to relate with this, a lot of things that are happening around us all the time are not our preference. Even neurotypical people, things are constantly happening around us that is not my preference. I'm like, oh, this isn't my preference. Oh, I don't like this. I don't want this. This isn't the thing that I want. This isn't the, the reality I want to experience. This isn't the thing that I want to happen. And I say to myself, Hich cheese bejos in nist. Hich cheese bejos in nist. Hich cheese bejos in nist. Which means there is nothing here but this. This is all there is. So get comfortable because this is it. Oh, you don't like this crazy scene that you're seeing in front of you? This is all there is. There's nothing else for you to see but this. This is what there is right now for you to see. Oh, you don't like how this relationship is going? This is what it is. This is the lesson that you are receiving right now. This is it. There's nothing but this. This right here, this is all there is. He cheese bitches in And it helps me because I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay, I'll see it through. <laughs> 